Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, it's good to be with you again, friends. I was driving in tonight. I, I took a different exit than I've taken before. Found myself in a different part of Brunswick than I've ever been before. Usually I've come in on like 17 here and done the two roundabouts and made my way back up to Boonesboro. I think I turned one too soon and ended up alongside the train tracks in like this really old fun part of town that I had never driven through. And uh, Scott and I have been chatting and checking in for a long time with one another just about what God's doing in our church, what God's doing in your church. And we've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And just as I was even driving in tonight, just thinking about um, the, some of the prayer requests that you've had about buildings and spaces and opportunities and even challenges. And so you're not alone in those petitions and just consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to join in with you in that. Um, so speaking of cities, all cities have a bit of a history and cities are named for a variety of reasons, and they tend to have a bit of a different flair or feel to them. And so I'm just kind of curious who here tonight would consider themselves a big city person? You love the big city. Nobody. (laughs) One dude. One dude. All right. I think I know where this next one's going. All right. All right. We got two dudes. I think I know where this next one's going. Who... Okay, that was my third question. All right, so the second one is, who's a small town person? Okay, all right. Who's, it's really nice to visit once in a while. All right, but just about everybody, just about everybody else. Um, So, I am a, it's really nice to visit once in a while kind of a guy. I love driving up to a big city and seeing the skyline in the distance. I love the excitement I feel as I'm trying to navigate traffic and cut people off and get to where my destination is and try to not get anybody killed. Like, it's just an adrenaline rush. But I equally love the breath that I take when that is all in my rearview mirror later on that evening. And I love driving away from Chicago or New York or Philadelphia or Baltimore when you're just kind of like, we did it. Everybody who's supposed to be in the vehicle is still in the vehicle. All the parts that are supposed to be on the vehicle are still on the vehicle. Like, we made it. This was a good trip. And when my wife and I lived in Warsaw, Winona Lake, Indiana, we did the Chicago trip more frequently. Sometimes we'd go to Indianapolis, but Chicago was a lot more exciting than Indianapolis. And so we would have those opportunities where we'd get to drive in and we'd get to see the skyline. Or maybe we were going to a ball game or we were just going downtown to do a show and, and uh, a meal together. And I, I tell you all of that, not only because it fits with what we're talking about in Revelation, but it also fits with my nickname. Because I dress the way I do because my wife dresses the way she does. And I learned very on that I needed to keep up. And one of the very first trips I made to her house in Pennsylvania, I took the train from Indiana to Pennsylvania. It was about 14 hours. It was the most miserable 14 hours of my existence. 
and I get there, and I have got more bags than a person should if for staying a few days. And her dad, this is the first time I'm meeting him, says, why did you pack so much? And I said, well, I don't pack like a woman. I pack for a woman. And your daughter needed to have options for my outfits on this trip. And that was how it all kind of began. And I've tried to keep up ever since. Well, we were in Chicago before our daughter was born, Allegra, our 12-year-old, almost 13. So this would have been about 13 years ago. And we were walking around. We went to Giordano's, famous for its deep dish pizza. And we were walking the streets of Chicago. We were going to go to the massive six-story sports authority building to see all the sporting good stuff that we couldn't afford. Had plans that night to go see Wicked. This was when Wicked was really popular, before Hamilton was really popular. And we were there. And we walked past two city gals who had a snicker and a stare and maybe a comment for my wife about how she was dressed. And I didn't hear or catch just about any of it, but she caught all of it. And it was one of those moments where you're like, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Like, it just was this, ah, what do we do with that? And of course, it was rude and out of bounds. And there was nothing I could say in that moment to recover her. We just kind of had to walk around for a little bit. And then we found 40 bucks on the ground. And we were looking around. And we're like, hidden manna. That's awesome. And just we're like, there we go. Paid for dinner. Uh, but cities have personalities. And sometimes people in those cities take those personalities as well, and it's no different for the cities that we've been looking at in Revelation and that we've started and you've started, and I'm getting the opportunity to join you here. On the screen, we'll have an opportunity to look at the seven different cities that the Jesus of the Bible, the God of the universe who took on flesh, instructed his most beloved disciple John to write postcards to, and this followed a mail route. It was something that a circuit rider would have ridden on or somebody carrying the mail would have walked around. And these were really important cities in this point in time. And so two weeks ago, you heard what Jesus had to say to Ephesus. Last week, you heard what Jesus had to say to Smyrna this morning or this evening. I usually preach on Sunday mornings. This evening, we're going to think about what Jesus has to say to Pergamum and to Grace Fellowship. And if you've got your Bibles, grab them. Revelation 2 is where we're going to be. If you find a Bible under your chair, grab that. Page 838 is where you can find the passage that we'll be in this morning, this evening. There it is again. But two weeks ago, the big idea to the church in Ephesus was Jesus writing to say, look, you've lost your first love. You do a whole lot of things really, really well. And when it comes to church things, the list that Jesus has to say to them is a really, really impressive list. But you're missing one thing. You've lost your first love. Last week to the church in Smyrna, Jesus speaks to them about a tested faith and how they've held fast. And the heat got turned up. It got real People in Smyrna were martyred. It got real. The heat got turned up. 
Tonight, we'll think about what Jesus has to say to the church in Pergamum. And really, the big idea is to have a pure faith. So thinking along the lines of cities, let's do a little bit more interactive stuff, if we could, for a moment. I want to play a little word association game with you, because each of the seven cities were a big deal in their own right. Some a bigger deal than others, but they were cities that had post offices for a reason. They were cities that received letters from Jesus for a reason, and it was more than likely that that's where the mail carrier would go, and that's where the distribution system would have been set up to get the word out beyond into perhaps the regions surrounding these areas. But let's think about some American cities, all right? So I'm going to give you a word, and you just give me the city that comes to mind here, all right? Broadway. New York, okay. Hollywood, LA, Los Angeles, very good. Um, This one's a little wordy, but hang with me, okay. The city that hosts the winningest football team in America, college football team in America, Ann Arbor, go blue, Michigan Wolverines, go blue. How about this one? The second city, Chicago. Named the second city. Named the second city primarily for two reasons. One, after the great Chicago fire, the city planners had a chance to do it all over again. Everything had burnt to the ground, and they had a second opportunity to rebuild and to replan. And if you've ever been there, you can see some of the buildings. There's only a handful, but some of them still stand that didn't burn, and it's amazing. But it was also called the Second City because some beat writers and opinion writers from the New York media were trying to cement their place as the first city by calling Chicago the Second City. And it was a bit of an insult for them as Chicago was rising to prominence in the 19th century as well. Well, the cities that you're going to look at over the next several weeks and that you've already begun have a bit of a character to themselves as well. Historically speaking, Pergamum, the city we're going to look at tonight, was the greatest city in Asia. It was the greatest city in Asia. It was the first capital city in this area of the world. However, it eventually lost its rival status to Ephesus, or lost its status to its rival, Ephesus. If you could throw the map of the seven cities back up there real quick, it's just real easy to understand why Ephesus was just a little closer to the trade routes on the ground and the seaports near the sea. And so when commerce, both on land and in maritime, took off, Ephesus was better positioned to be ready for it. And how many times has that been the rise or the fall of even cities in America? How many cities like Brunswick were built on railways and beside rivers? Pergamum was similar. It was never going to be able to achieve the most commercial greatness that Ephesus was. Now, Pergamum, as the greatest city, or historically speaking, had that marker, but Smyrna was called and understood to be known as the most beautiful city. Ephesus, because of its trade routes, both on land and on sea, was known as the most economically developed city. But here's where Pergamum, 
began to lay its claim to fame. They were the most culturally affluent city. They were the city associated with high culture. They might have lost the economic capital that trade routes and ships would have provided, but they retained something culturally speaking that still made a tremendous impact in the region around them. They had something culturally speaking that surpassed Smyrna, Ephesus, and every other city that Jesus writes to. Pergamum, at this point in time in history, had the second greatest and largest library known to man that had ever been developed. The largest was in Alexandria, Egypt. It was the library of Alexandria, and the second largest, boasting some 200,000 parchments, was in Pergamum. Pergamum was also famous because it was the residence of the second most famous doctor of this period of time. Now, just out of curiosity, anybody know who the first most famous doctor might be? Anybody in the medical field? Is that ringing a bell for any of you? Yeah, Hippocrates. And if you're in the medical field, you have to take an oath, which is called the Hippocratic Oath, named after Hippocrates. Well, the second most famous guy who lived hundreds of years after Hippocrates resided in what? Dr. Who is not his name. His name was, I believe, Dr. Galen, not Dr. Who. But Pergamum had something culturally speaking that these other cities couldn't touch. And that's part of what's going on in the backdrop of what Jesus has to say to the church in Pergamum. And so if you've got your Bibles open, let's read what Jesus has to say to them. It's a bit long but it'll be worth our time. Would you join me? And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, that I will, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you pray with me? Well, God in heaven, we come before you now to hear from you. And we pray that you'd give us those ears to hear that Jesus instructs. That you'd give us those eyes to see that what we understand from your word tonight would be in accordance with the truth that you have spoken. God, would you guard and guide my words that what I say in this place would be faithful to what you have said. 
God, we pray that you would meet with us in a special way, that we may understand more of your glory and your righteousness and your holiness, but yet also your grace and your mercy and your steadfast love. God, help us to see and understand more of who Jesus is and the words that he writes to this church and by extension us today. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, one of the first things that jumps out in these verses is that the instruction that John had received from Jesus and that Jesus now writes again to the church in Pergamum with bears similarity to the description that John has of Jesus when he sees him in chapter 1 and falls as if dead. And so the two-edged sword is not the first time this shows up. The sword coming from Jesus mouth is not the last time this is going to come up either. It's going to show up in Revelation 19, but you have a sword being used to describe a few things here. First of all, I think it's a way to describe the authority of the person of Jesus, the authority of the word of Jesus, and it's also, I believe, a symbol that Jesus is using to show and demonstrate that his power and his authority and his word is greater than the power and the authority and the word of the Romans who would have been the leaders, politically speaking, in this region of the world. Pergamum wasn't its own entity geopolitically speaking. Rome would have had significant influence and control over them, and Rome used the sword to lead with might. And if you stepped out of line, you got the sword. Well, here's Jesus saying, I've got a sword too. And I'm quite inclined to think that his sword's probably bigger than theirs. But this sword was the large, broad sword. It wasn't the dagger sword that might get pulled out from time to time in close combat battle. It was like the Excalibur-like sword where you wield it and you are going into battle sword. Jesus was decisively sovereign, not Rome. And Rome had their swords and they knew how to wield their swords, but Jesus had his own And he equally knew how to use it. And so he is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. He's the one who has an authority and a word for this church that is greater than the authority and the word that Rome may claim to have. In verse 13, the two words that lead off that spot in my Bible at least are the words, I know. And I don't know if you've thought real deeply about these words over the last few weeks, but these words are words that can provide tremendous comfort or tremendous terror. Think about what Jesus had to say to the church in Ephesus, because he used the words in verse 2 of chapter 2, I know there as well, as he did to Smyrna in verse 9 of chapter 2, I know as well. You might actually see that repeat itself throughout each of these letters. So when Jesus says he knows, there's nothing hidden from him, because he has an authority that is unequaled. He has an authority that is unparalleled. He has eyesight because of who he is as God. 
that is unlike any other. And so for the church in Ephesus, hey, you guys are doing this well. I know that you're doing this well. I see all things, and I know that you're doing this well. You're doing that really well. I, I know that you're doing that really well because I see all things. To so the church in Smyrna, he's going to say, look, I know that that brother lost his life. I know that those martyrs paid for my name with their blood. That has not escaped my attention. Like, there's moments of tremendous comfort that are, can be found with the words, I know. I know, Jesus says. But let's not miss the other side, because Jesus also has a few things for the church in Pergamum, and one specific thing for the church in Ephesus that he also knows. I know, he says to the church in Ephesus, that you lost your first love. I know to the church in Pergamum that you're, or some of you, are holding the teaching of Balaam. Some of you are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That hasn't escaped my attention either. And so at the same time, the same words that can provide a tremendous amount of comfort for those walking in faithfulness before the Lord are equally intended to provide a oh-no moment for those who might not be. But the very fact that Jesus comes saying these things is an expression of his grace and his mercy. Because the invitation and the word that he'll give to this church as he gave to the church in Ephesus is to repent. Like, I know what you're doing. Just repent. I know. Well, we see comfort jump off the page for to the Pergamum church right in the beginning, similar to Smyrna. We see comfort jump off the page. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So it's a pretty big deal to have a verse or a passage where Satan shows up twice, and here he is front and center, I know, Jesus says, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. And we don't have time tonight to dig into all of what that means. Here's perhaps the best 30-second summary that I could give you. All of the trappings and temptations that you could associate with Satan, which most broadly speaking is anything that displeases God, He's going to want to pour fuel on that fire. He's going to want to encourage people to do anything that pleases the heart of God. He's going to want to discourage people to do. He's going to want to put flour or water on that fire. Like, that's a great summary of just the activity of Satan. The church in Pergamum probably was experiencing that to a higher degree of intensity than you and I have ever experienced that. I don't know if Brunswick has ever been identified as the church or the city where Satan dwells. Pergamum is. Where his throne is. Now, there was actually an altar in Pergamum. The guys are going to put some pictures on the screen. This is a small-scale rendering. Um, This is the altar of Zeus. And this is actually a picture taken in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. 
And so what happened was archaeologists found parts of this structure in their excavation work with Pergamum, and they began to bring it back, and they began to restore it, and they began to put it on display. And here's a small-scale rendering, but if you look in, in, in the, the intersection, so like imagine you're walking up the stairs, and you get to the intersection through the columns, and you can see there the wider rectangle of the roof, and then inset there is a smaller rectangle. That was the great altar of Zeus, constructed during the reign of a king. It had a surface area of about 90 meters by 90 meters. It's probably bigger than this room. Unquestionably bigger than this room. Think of football field. That's a big altar. It's a big altar. Guys, go to the next picture. We'll kind of try to give you some perspective here. There it is, the altar. And then, guys, roll to the next one. There's people standing at the museum Pergamum in Berlin in front of parts that were excavated in archaeological digs. This was a massive, massive, massive structure. Was Antipas killed on that throne? Nobody knows. That's a massive altar to hold sacrifices. The intensity of idol worship in Pergamum might have been unparalleled in any other place in this region and part of the world. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I know the kind of neighbors you have. I know that it's pretty hot. I know that it's pretty hard. I know that you live where Satan dwells and where his throne is, and yet... You hold fast my name, even when brothers, and one particular one is named, have given up their lives. That's comfort. That's comfort. It's very similar to what Jesus has to say to the church in Smyrna. There he's telling them, look, it, you're going to give up your life, but don't worry. I've got a crown of life waiting to give you that will never be taken. Those words provide comfort. Here Jesus is providing comfort, and yet in verse 14, the terror begins to come as well. And we have to see both parts. But I have a few things against you. You have some there, not all of them, just some of them. We don't know how many. We don't know how influential but some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In a big picture way, you have believers living in error is what Jesus is identifying. And he even identifies the specific error that they were living in. It's not everybody, it's some people. And he first references those that hold to the teaching of Balaam. 
And if you've not done a lot in your Old Testament Bibles recently, Balaam is this crazy, crazy figure that shows up in the book of Numbers. If you've read chronologically through the Bible recently, or maybe you started that in January, you might be getting close to that section, or perhaps have just crossed over that. But Balaam is this crazy, crazy guy. And what had happened was the nation of Israel was still wandering around in the desert. They were still eating manna by day. They were still getting quail at night. They were getting that five times a day or five times a week with a double portion at the end of the week so that they didn't have to go and collect on Saturdays, which would have been their Sabbath. God was providing for their material needs in miraculous ways, and they were millions of people. And Balak had heard the rumors. He had heard the rumors. He had heard the rumblings. He knew the, the, the conquering and the battle victories that Israel had had up to this point. And so he gets Balaam, who was probably similar to a modern-day um, palm reader, astrologist, fortune teller, tarot card individual. That's kind of who Balaam was. And Balak says, hey, um, I, I, want you, I want you to go curse these people. And Balaam seems to know enough of the nation of Israel. He wasn't from their nation. He had a different people of his own. But he seems to know enough from them to know that this may not go exactly how you think it's going to go, Balak, but I'm going to give it my best shot. And he even actually tried to get away from that invitation a few different times. And he relents eventually, and he's like, all right, well, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. And it's a fascinating, fascinating interchange between Balak and Balaam and Balaam and God. And so Balaam starts to then utter this curse. Well, the curse is actually a blessing. And Balak gets all heated and he's like, I paid you to curse them, but yet you blessed them. What is going on? Let's just try that whole thing again. So they try the whole thing again. And Balaam's like, look, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. And God works through Balaam's mouth again. And it's a blessing and not a cursing the second time. Balak's like, I, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what you were hired to do. Let's try it a third time. They repeat it again a third time. Well, then the same thing happens, and Balak's a bit beside himself. And so Balaam has one more oracle to give, and it's actually a curse against Balak. And there's actually this beautiful little foreshadowing of Christ right in the heart of it as well. We don't have a record of what Balaam taught Balak, but we know what happened right after in Numbers 25. Numbers 22, 23, and 24 record that exchange between Balaam and Balak, and Balaam and God, and Balaam and Balak, and Balaam and God. And then in Numbers 25, we have an account of what took place. And Moses records that while living in Shittim, the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the daughters of Moab invited people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate, and they bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself with Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. 
Balaam's one of those crazy Old Testament guys that you wonder, all right, how much of that actually happened? And yet he shows up at least three times in the New Testament, including our passage, where all the New Testament writers write about Balaam as if everything that Numbers 22 to 25 tell us are actually what happened. Here's what I think took place. I'm using my imagination a little bit. But I think after the third time of Balaam trying to curse Israel and it not going well, he was now in spin mode, trying to save his own skin. He had been hired to do a job. He had been paid pretty handsomely for said job, and it did not go the way his employer wanted it to go. And I believe, and I'm using imagination here, here's what I think happened. I think Balaam brought Balak close and said, hey, um, this cursing thing that you have in mind, it's just not going real well. But I know what to do. You see, that nation of Israel has been wandering around for a while. Uh, they haven't had steak in decades. So get your best gals. Get them all dialed up. Get your best meat. and Get it all smoked and tender. And invite them over for a barbecue. It seems to be what Jesus links together when he references the teaching of Balaam to Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. In some ways, Balaam taught Balak how to entice the Israelites to not be satisfied with God's good gifts. That's what Balaam taught them. Someone in this church was holding to the teaching of Balaam. And either they were teaching or they were living in a way that said, yeah, I know God's given good gifts there. I just have these appetites over here. And I want these appetites satisfied. Yeah, I, I, I know God's miraculously provided a, a square meal for me every day that we've been wandering around this miserable desert. But I'm tired of what God's provided. I'm tired of the good gifts that he's given. I want to go find my satisfaction there. Balaam taught Balak how to incite the restlessness in the human heart so that their restless hearts weren't looking to find rest in him. They were looking to find rest somewhere else. The teaching of Balaam would be the, yeah, I know Jesus says, but. Put whatever but you want after that. Yeah, I know Jesus says, but. Well, there was another teaching as well, and it was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And again, some hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, not all. And this is not the first time the Nicolaitans have shown up. And so Scott's not wrong when we don't really know a lot about the Nicolaitans. 
We can infer some things from the name, and we can infer some things from the word that their name comes from. We actually have an English word. It's a famous brand that derives its name from the same root word the Nicolaitans derived their name from. It's the brand Nike. The Greek word Nike means victory, and it was what the Nicolaitans built their name on. Interestingly enough, it's also what the word conquer is built on as well. And so if you look at all seven of the letters, there's this refrain that shows up at the end of them, to the one who conquers, to the one who has victory. So the Nicolaitans, we don't know everything that was going on there, but here, if I can again just use my imagination, I would surmise this. If the teaching of Balaam was the, yes, we know what God said, but we really want to go do this thing over here. The teaching of the Nicolaitans might have been, have you ever thought about how amazing God's grace is? And that he'll forgive you no matter what you do? So it doesn't really matter what you do. Because his grace is so amazing. So go and just do it. Because he'll be right there with his grace and mercy. Paul addressed some of those things in the church in Rome. A couple different times in the book of Romans, he said, should we just keep sinning so that grace would abound? Like there was like this idea that if, if sin magnifies the grace of God, that doesn't it stand to reason that more sin magnifies more the grace of God? And he's like, you guys got it backwards. Like, yes, sin magnifies the grace of God, but that doesn't give you permission then to go as a celebration of his grace and find new creative ways to walk in patterns of sinfulness. I think that's probably where I would land on what the Nicolaitans were teaching. Now, the end result with the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans was probably the same actions, quite frankly. They probably landed in the same place in what they were actually doing, Theologically, they got there from completely opposite directions. One was like, I know what God said and I don't care. The other was like, I know what God said and His grace is so amazing. We're just going to do what we want because it's a celebration of His grace. And they met in the middle and Jesus said, look, I, I got some struggles with what you're doing. And He instructs them to repent. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who has victory. Maybe there's a play on words there. I will give the hidden manna I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
I think the command to repent is probably a command that needs to be understood in two ways. The command of Jesus to repent certainly, I think, finds its application in those who want to say, yeah, we know what Jesus says, but. Or, how amazing is His grace, so look what I get to do. Like, that's a fairly obvious application to what Jesus is saying. I think the command to repent could also include those in the church that didn't hold to the teaching. Because there was a responsibility they had to the community of believers around them to exhort them, to encourage them, to admonish them. And Paul's letter to the first Corinthian or to the Corinthians, his first letter to them, he writes about a similar experience. There was some hanky-panky going on in that church that wouldn't have even been tolerated in the broader society of Corinth, which was pretty liberal. The individuals involved were just there saying, we love Jesus and we're so glad he lets us do this. And Paul takes issue with the church. How can you guys let somebody who bears the name brother or sister walk in those ways? There's a community responsibility we have to one another. Too much comfort and not enough terror might lead us to shrug off the commands of Jesus. Ignore the perfect authority that Jesus has. The fact that he judges righteously and with a righteous judgment. And the promise that Jesus gives to the one who conquers is hidden manna, a white stone with a name on it. I don't personally know what to do with any of that. The promises given at each of the end of each of these letters are all eternal. So I I don't think the application is to go find the manna out in the field when we're done. Um, And I was actually at a wedding once when they gathered around a large, broad sword that was held up, and they prayed to understand what their new names were. And I'm not sure that fits either. It was kind of weird. There might be a connection between the manna Jesus is promising to provide eternally and the fact that the Israelites grumbled and were disgruntled with the manna that Jesus had provided when they wandered. But those connections aren't clearly made in the text. What is given is that Jesus honors, he rewards, and he gives eternal gifts to those who hold fast his name. And he knows what type of situation you're in. And it might be a hard place to hold fast his name. And there could be tremendous comfort. It might also be just you playing fast and loose with his name. And if that's the case, there's some opportunities to feel some terror. But it's a redemptive terror. Jesus is warning them 
the invitations to repent. And I think of two women from the Gospel of John that I think just characterize the heart of Jesus as we think about sexual immorality and either erring on the, I know what Jesus says, but I just don't really care, or how great, how great is grace? I get to do whatever I want all seven days of the week, and I just show up on Saturday nights for like an hour and 20 minutes, especially when Tim's in town, and, and like, it's just awesome. I think of two women. One was the woman that Jesus met at the well, who in countering Jesus, ran around to everybody else and disclosed everything because she found the comfort. He knew. Jesus says that to us tonight. I know. We're not hiding anything from him. The invitations to repent and his grace really is that amazing. And the other woman I think of is the one in John 8 who was dragged in front of Jesus by a whole bunch of hypocritic religious men, trumped up charges, injustice at its finest. She was caught red-handed, but there was two people in that bed, and only one of them was brought before him. He had every legal reason and every desire from every one of those religious men to throw the book at her. Maybe more accurately, a stone. And what he did was show her grace. Because his grace really is that amazing. So I don't know where you find yourselves tonight. You might be carrying a whole lot of baggage because you did the, I know what Jesus says, but... Or you did the, yeah, I'm just going to go and get myself clean when I show up for church on, on Saturday night. And you, you, you've walked that road for a long time. And that might be you. It might have been you. And you're still fighting the, the memories of it or the remorse from it or just the guilt and shame that can creep up when Satan wants to bring all of that up. His grace and mercy really is that great. Our hope is built on nothing less than what Jesus has done for us and paying the penalty for all of our sin, giving us his righteousness when we trust in him and promising eternal gifts for those who follow him faithfully. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word for what it is that you said a few thousand years ago to the church in Pergamum, that you still say today, that we've heard you say tonight, and we pray that you would give us those ears to hear what the Spirit says to this church. Help us understand more of your grace and mercy, not as a license to sin, but as an invitation to celebrate and to walk in, in forgiveness and cleansing and the newness of life. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you know. And we pray this in your good name.
Christ. Amen.